Before we start today's show, I could really use your help with something. As you know, Master Brewers is an association run by some of the hardest working folks in the brewing industry. They all have jobs, but also serve the association as volunteers in lots of different ways. I need your help filling a volunteer role that, in my opinion, is one of the simplest but most important jobs. It's super easy, doesn't take much time at all, but is critical to the value of membership and to this podcast. If you're willing to help me out and give back to this incredible association, please take a minute to go to masterbrewerspodcast.com slash working group to learn more. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. We always knew that, you know, wastewater was going to fit into the into the picture, um, but I think we had no no idea that we were looking at, you know, kind of somewhere, you know, over a quarter million dollars a year. In, in just those kind of in just those you know co- haulage side stream um, and you know surcharge fees in addition to just kind of the general operating costs of running a, you know pH treatment system um, you know labor chemicals etc <laughs> like I said nobody really wants to be doing wastewater this week on the show like it or not you're in the wastewater business but don't worry here's someone who can help Hi, my name is Campbell Morrissey. I'm the head brewer at Freem Family Brewers here in Hood River, Oregon. We're going to hear about some practical takeaways that come from your own wastewater journey at two different breweries. Before we do that, talk about your recent survey of Master Brewers District Northwest Breweries, which gives us a good idea of the boundaries in which breweries, at least in that part of the country, need to navigate. Certainly, uh, coming into this, you know, wastewater journey, uh, I come from breweries that are mostly in kind of semi-rural, uh, but tourist-driven towns, um, and you know, both the regions are pretty diverse as far as having urban centers to kind of a lot of suburban communities, and then obviously into like more rural, rural-type areas. And it was really interesting 
or we were really interested in figuring out kind of what other people were facing and kind of how to benchmark ourselves um, and at least what we were getting monitored on by our city uh, public you know, treatment works. And I also thought leading into this presentation, it would be really good to share some of the information that we found and kind of seeing where everyone else was. And so I sent out a survey uh, using our MBA district uh, communication page uh, just to get a general kind of state of the industry in, in Northwest. Tell us, uh, tell us what you found out. Yeah, so uh, we got 13 respondents. Uh, so it's not exactly the, the largest sample size, but we did have a really nice distribution of different types of breweries as well as different locales. So um, we had a pretty even split between size uh, with about, you know, a few, like about a quarter of the folks coming from, you know, less than a thousand barrel breweries, um, all the way up to a quarter of the folks coming from breweries greater than 50,000 barrels. So we're really capturing all types of facilities. Um, similarly, we found a pretty even distribution of uh, town size. So size of municipality that the, the brewery is located in and thus discharging into um, really almost 25% uh, less than 10,000, 25%, 10,000, 50,000 people, uh, 25%, 50 to 250,000. And then, you know, 25% in those large cities greater than 250,000. Um, and then once we actually started looking at uh, limits, um, the one thing that was really consistent was everyone was going to be monitored on pH. Um, and so that's pH of discharge, effluent, um, we found a pretty big spread um, here at Freem. We're we're pretty tight. We're we have a lower limit of six point five and an upper limit of nine. Um, EPA limits are somewhere I believe five to twelve, um, and so we were kind of we're pretty tight. So we do a lot more treatment than maybe some other folks will have to do. Um, we did see a lot of our respondents are on that have that that much lower limit, um, either five to five and a half or five and a half to six that made up, uh, just about 60%, I believe, uh, 55, 60% of our total respondents. Um, whereas the other, the other 40 or so percent were, uh, kind of closer to us that six to six, five. Um, <clears throat> there was a lot more, dis- uh, a lot more spread on the upper pH limit. Um, that's going to be kind of more of a infrastructure side of things, less of a microbe side of things. So, yeah, we're again. We have a nine, a hard nine upper limit. Um, only, only seven percent of respondents. That may just be us. Actually, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to do one divided by thirteen. Uh, are are nine or less? Um, whereas actually, over forty six percent of them were greater than eleven or eleven or greater. Um, and so that's that's just really indicative of potentially the size of our plant relative to the size of other plants. Um, some of the age issues. Um, we're an, we're an older plant here. Um, and, you know, so that, that's kind of something we have to work on. And so we probably will use a lot more uh, acid to treat our, our effluent than others do. Makes sense. And you also asked about some other areas too, like BOD and TSS. What, what, what else did you find out from, from these breweries? Um, you know, it was really, it was an interesting mix. Um, we got people who were permitted users such as us, as well as kind of non-permitted users who have uh, kind of discharge agreements with the city. Um, that's kind of a common thing you'll find in breweries just based on size. Um, and so we did find that uh, 12 of the 13 respondents are required to do some sort of side streaming. Um, and that's in addition to spent crane. We just kind of assume that's, that's the rule. Everybody does. That. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, but funny people don't always think of that as side streaming. Um, right. But we, uh, we did find that 12 or 13 people do or of the respondents do do some sort of side streaming um, with really diverse sense of outlets. 
Um, some are, are able to mix it with their spent grain. Um, some work with composting facilities. Uh, some are doing direct field spray applications, um, usually through a contractor with a, you know, a Department of Agriculture spray permit. Um, you know, and then a couple of people like us start going out to dairy retention ponds. Um, the one that was really helpful for us as we kind of are in, currently in permit negotiations uh, for our permit renewal in September. Um, there's a mix of limit and surcharge models. Um, limit models are where you have a hard discharge limit for uh, BOD or TSS concentration, and that's measured in pounds per day, which is essentially your concentration in milligrams per liter multiplied by your daily flow times a coefficient. Um, and that actually calculates to the loadings in pounds of BOD or loadings in pounds of TSS uh, per day per day discharge. Uh, it's kind of an odd, an odd metric, but that's pretty standard across the industry. And limits are are interesting in that they, you know, you know exactly how how much you, you know what you can't discharge over, and you can discharge under that. Um, if you were to discharge over, it's a violation. You get fined, and then you could potentially rack up enough violations to get shut down. Surcharge uh, models uh, are basically essentially paying for the discharge, the effluent that you are discharging. So you pay uh, per you know, a per pound rate, um, you know, it could be about like, let's just say 25 cents a pound for BOD. Um, and if you discharge 400 pounds a day, you pay 400 times 0.25. If you do 600, you pay point, you know, 25 cents a pound on that. Um, and what's nice there is that, you know, you have a little more buffer room. Um, essentially, you're paying the city to treat your waste. Uh, and you're, you're contributing to the infrastructure of the plant, you're paying your way, so to speak. But you tend to, if you have a limit, it tends to be fairly high. So risks of violations tend to be a lot lower, but then you have costs associated with that. So there's pros and cons there. Okay, let's go back to 2017, where a 5,000 barrel brewery in Arizona began its wastewater journey. Yeah, uh, back when I was working at Mother Road Brewing in Flagstaff, Arizona, um, Flagstaff, if not people not familiar with, is a uh, what I like to call the nice part of Arizona, uh, up at 7,000 feet, nice and cool. But, you know, it's a larger tourist town. Uh, about 70,000 folks live there. Um, but we're, you know, a big tourist destination for the Phoenix metro area, uh, mostly due to that climate change or, you know, climate differential up there. Um, we had two publicly owned treatment works, um, but, you know, not a ton of big industry, a few uh, big uh, big players, such as a big Purina plant. Um, there's actually a big ice cream cone manufacturer there. Um, but when we were opening our production facility, you know, about three to four months before we were projected to finish construction, uh, the city wastewater treatment uh, folks got in, got in touch with us and said that they were, you know, considering us for a permit, um, which was the first we had heard about that. Um, and so we were kind of one shocked, but also kind of like, okay, let's get involved here. Um, interestingly enough, we weren't the largest brewery in town at the time. Uh, we were just looked at as having the potential to be a significant discharger. And so, you know, through that required um, some infrastructure changes to our plans. Um, and ultimately it did hold us up a little bit, but it was honestly for the best um, since we were able to put some equipment in um, before we opened up versus, uh, you know, months after the fact. And so, you know, through that, we were also, you know, facing budgetary constraints, you know, as you get close to a production <laughs> A production facility build out, uh, you know, most of them seem to overrun uh, budget. And so this was certainly pushing us over. Um, so we did somewhat of a, 
you know, we, we did a very creative, we did some very creative solutions, um, and kind of phased ourselves. Um, as well as we worked closely with the city to get on a, a long-term probation period, um, to basically develop some models to understand what our loads were going to be, um, building a compliance structure before we were under going to be under a full permit. All right. And then about a year and a half ago, you ended up at Freem in beautiful Hood River. Give us some background on Freem's wastewater journey. Yeah, so I came in um, you know, to Freem after kind of a large expansion. Um, and early in that expansion, uh, they were also uh, in their permit journey. Um, so actually, my first day was the first day we did a side stream discharge to a truck. Um, so I kind of uh, hit the ground running with uh, some equipment. Um, Hood River is much smaller than uh, Flagstaff was. We're only about 8,000 people here. Um, we have one, uh, one treatment plant, um, and we are one of four significant industrial users. Um, what's interesting here is that relative to the size of the town, 8,000 people, we have two fairly large breweries. Um, you know, we're doing about 35,000 barrels a year, um, and you know, about half a mile away is full sale. You know, that's cranking out, you know, six figure barrels. So there's two fairly large brewing production facilities, um, as well as two food manufacturing plants uh, locally. Tofurky is one of them. Tofurky is one of them. Yeah. And uh, what's the other one? Uh, Ryan's Juices, uh, an apple juice okay. uh, processor. You know, we're, uh, we're in the Fruit Loop. Um, so we grow tons of apples and pears here in the Hood River Valley, as well as the surrounding valleys. Um, and so, and actually three of us, you know, full sale is half a mile away and they're fa- they're practically in the suburbs relative to us. Um, Tofurky, Ryan's Juices and us are all in, in the same industrial complex. Um, so it's really nice collaborative. Um, we've actually started meeting on a regular basis, the four, the four groups of us, um, just as we kind of get into permit negotiations. Having only four SIUs, um, all kind of in similar sectors of manufacturing, uh, make for some really collaborative uh, discussions. Um, you know, we talk about equipment, we talk about challenges, we talk about permits, so that we all feel that we're getting kind of the same, the same treatment um, with the city. So it's been really helpful to, to collaborate with those folks, you know, not just in the brewing industry. Um, so our compliance is, is pretty simple. Um, and actually, you know, nothing that we do here at Freem is significantly different than we did at Mother Road. Um, you know, our primary focus is on pH treatment. Um, so we're, you know, we treat any, any effluent that hits the floor, uh, goes into, uh, gets basically pumped into a giant EQ holding tank. So an equalization tank. Um, and then in a batch process, we will uh, batch over 2,500 gallon batches of wastewater, uh, measure pH, treat, and then discharge to city. And that's that's our main compliance point. Um, you know, we discharge directly to the POTW. Uh, we take flow, temperature, and pH readings, um, and then monthly we submit that as our self in our self monitoring report. Um, the other side of that is uh, heavy side streaming. So it's finding all of the points for, you know, high organic solid, uh, organic matter and solid loads um, in, in our brewing process um, to ensure that what we're discharging uh, also meets our BOD and TSS limits. Um, and as I mentioned here at Freem, um, we're currently under a limit model, um, but as of September, we're moving to a surcharge model. So really understanding what we're discharging uh, how we're discharging it, what it costs to haul versus what it costs to treat um, has been a real interesting cost benefit analysis as we start kind of phasing in, you know, the next, the five-year plan, 10-year plan even uh, for our wastewater treatment. Okay. All right. Let's get into the practical part. Let's dive into 
some of the key areas of wastewater compliance and hear about the different approaches that these two breweries took in each area. Uh, first, let's get into pH treatment. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, pH treatment is kind of the core, uh, the core for, you know, pre wastewater pretreatment in general. Um, in our survey, we found even a lot of the non-permitted users are still required to do some sort of pH adjustment um, of their effluent. Um, so really simple matter is we just collect anything that hits the floor. Um, so we consider anything that's not side stream to hit the floor. Um, it flows into our standard floor drains. Um, you know, in both facilities, every, all those floor drains uh, uh, float into pump stations, um, basically, you know, big, you know, big sumps that with, uh, with submersible pumps, the submersible pumps pump into a big holding tank. Um, at Mother Road, it was pretty simple. Um, we had a 2,500 gallon holding tank, uh, that big poly tank, tankdepot.com. I can't stress them enough. <laughs> um, but basically a big poly holding tank. Um, when the brewer saw that the tank was nearing full, uh, they would take a sample. Uh, pH sample, run pH and temperature on it. Um, if we were out of range, they would uh, turn on a recirc loop. Uh, we built just a pretty simple recirculation pump that was interlocked to a caustic dosing pump, um, and it would just dose caustic in line. We, you know, for and this was fairly non-automated. Um, you know, we built this system, you know, fairly much on the cheap, and just wanted to have something that was reliable, safe. Uh, but also fairly cost effective. Um, and so that took some trial and error, but we kind of got a sense of basing knowing our knowing our effluent, kind of, you know, how long you would have to run to bring it up, you know, half a half a pH or one pH or so to speak. Um, and if your production outputs are pretty similar, you know, day over day, you know, you don't have a lot of variation there. You kind of know like end of the day on, you know, a big brew day, you'll be somewhere around, you know, 4.5 and it'll take you 20 minutes to treat or whatever. Um, you know, and kind of understanding how, how we're, you know, brew house waste versus beer waste will affect that. Um, and just kind of building in some SOPs around it, but it was fairly simple. Um, they would check it, you know, once, once they were in range, uh, we were, we were a little, you know, we had that higher pH range. We were six to 11. Um, if we were in range, they would discharge, um, it would go through a flow meter. Um, we would log the flow. Uh, that would all go in a spreadsheet, and that spreadsheet was our SMR that went to the city. Um, I worked pretty closely with them to just kind of make sure that they felt like this was a robust enough system. And um, through that collaboration, we were able to kind of develop those SOPs that they were pretty pretty happy with. Cool. So this was all manual system. Did um did you kind of um did you um did you build it first and and start it and show it to them, or did you say like, hey, this is how we're thinking about doing this? Uh, is this okay? Uh, yeah, they were. Um, so when we first uh, were approached by the city, uh, we kind of were like, oh my gosh. So we uh, we ended up hiring a consultant early on, um, and in their basically the consultant provided us a quote for what they thought we would need. Um, that was about, you know, 10 X what we had budgeted to spend. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then thankfully, you know, working with the city and working with our local contractors, um, you know, in a small town, our contractors, you know, the people we selected were also doing some of the bigger installations, like at the hospital, um, you know, at some of those industrial facilities. So they were pretty familiar kind of with what the city wants and what they've seen at other places. Um, and so we kind of, we we collaborated with the city with our contractors um and then using kind of the in, the resources i pulled from like mba and the ba to design 
you know, this fairly manual system. Um, and it, it certainly evolved over time, uh, but it was really great to have the city's input um, to just make sure that we were building something and designing some SOPs that were going to, you know, kind of line up with what they were expecting. Cool. All right. So, um, so that was at Mother Road. Let's hear about how Freem does it. Yeah. So Freem's, you know, the overall, the pH treatment side of things is really not that different at Freem. Um, you know, we're a larger facility. Um, and the nice thing at Freem is we built a fairly, a fully automated pH treatment system. Um, some of the key differences there, you know, we still flow into a wet well. That wet well then pumps over into an EQ tank. Um, but we have a second, a third, you know, a third point in that. We have our batch treatment tank. Um, so when the treatment, when the EQ tank hits a high level, um, it'll pump over to the treatment tank. Um, the treatment tank will then start monitoring pH. Um, when it'll start dosing pH accordingly, uh, because we have those tighter limits, I said six and a half to nine, we do have to dose both up and down more frequently. Um, actually, I think at Mother Road, in the three years we were really using that system, we only added acid to dose down once. Um, so again, you know, kind of building a system based on your limits is important. Um, so we do have to have two dosing pumps, two, two chemical handling areas. Uh, but that system's fully automated. So, you know, it'll, it'll move batches through, um, it exports data points to the cloud, and then we extract that data to send to our SMR. Um, while it's much fancier, um, and can, you know, process quite a bit of volume a day, you know, and we don't have to, you know, we don't have to have brewers, uh, you know, taking pH samples or physically doing the discharges. It's, there's no, like, additional complexity to what we're doing here. Um, You know, we're, we're taking our brewery effluent, we're monitoring pH, we're measuring pH, we're dosing caustic or acid in it, and then we discharge the city. Um, you know, it's still a batch process. Um, we decided to go batch versus a continuous um, based on the kind of what happens in our brewery. Um, you know, as many breweries our size and the mother road size, you know, you, you kind of can slug your own system with, you know, a co- like a caustic, a caustic rinse, um, and then you slug it with a PAA rinse. You know, and so having your EQ tank that kind of can balance some of that out and then having to do some kind of batch treatment to get get it there. Um, whereas continuous systems can, you know, kind of swing your pumps a lot more. Um, and we just found that with brewery effluent, that didn't really make sense. Do you ever um, do you ever get in a situation where the EQ tank uh, can just be discharged without treatment? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, we still run it through the, in our, at Mother Road, you know, since our EQ and batch tank was the same. I would say, you know, I'll actually look it up really quick. You know, I would say half the batches at Mother Road didn't require treatment. Um, You know, you just had that kind of, you know, we didn't have a CIP skid, so all of our CIP was sacrificial. Um, And so just that natural balance across the day. Um, And as I mentioned, you know, so we would would often kind of be fairly close, you know, just over six. so that was that was really nice uh, to you know obviously just be able to measure it and okay you know I'm done <laughs> but uh, uh, Freem we definitely treat more um, you know some of that is how aggressively we side stream um, so I, I won't you know I'll talk a little bit more side streaming as we kind of get to that but um, you know the less the less wort and less beer in your effluent stream uh, the lower your buffering capacity is so you know we uh, we're often like swinging up we can be swinging up a little high in some of our batch processes uh, in swings that I, I didn't see, see at mother road um, because our side streaming efforts were, were just not quite as robust. 
All right, let's hear about side streaming at Mother Road. Yeah, so side streaming uh, was kind of a an evolving process. As I mentioned at Mother Road, uh, we were on a long probationary period um, where we were, you know, kind of trying to build. We were they were the city was collecting data from us to understand what our loads were so that they could eventually set limits. Um, and so we just kind of got guidance from them. Um, you know, we would we kind of went through a few months and then we got met, you know, we took weekly sample did a weekly sampling event. Then, you know, they're okay, like you're probably still too high here. So they would give us advice and we would Yeah, you know, but they didn't really understand our process. So they would kind of just basically say, You're too high. Um do better. Do better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um and so, you know, through that, you know, that again coming back to just like, you know, our collaborative industry being able to you know pick people's brains and read resources to find better solutions. Um, so you know we started with the, the basics, uh, you know, pulling you know yeast, trube, all the things off the cellar tanks. Um, you know, collecting those into IBC totes, um, and then we were sending them off to a composter. Um, for a while, we were actually just filling the totes and then loading them on a truck, and he was driving it out there. Um, and eventually, we were just getting to the capacity where we ended up. We ended up upgrading the size of our EQ tank. Um, we went from 1,500 to 2,500, and then I repurposed that 1,500-gallon tank as a uh, holding tank, so we could be doing you know 1,000-gallon discharges to the composter. So we started with the cellar. Uh, we then started you know looking at packaging because um, that was pretty easy. Um, you know, obviously there's always going to be some beer that hits the floor, um, but you know when we would always you know, if we're dumping, if we had to dump kegs, um, or like kegs would come back, you know, you know, half full or something, we would dump those into totes. Um, and we would just do, you know, periodic, you know, any sort of, any sort of like collectible waste off the canning line, we would also dump in there. Um, so that was, that was kind of the next step. And then lastly, we finally started collecting our weak wort off the brew house. Um, and that was really as simple as just adding in an extra, uh, elbow and valve or T and valve off off our louder pump um and so at the end of louder we would just you know close the flow to the kettle and then you know open that and just pump it pump it off into a holding tank um and that actually really started that was one of the biggest loading points um and as i'll talk later in the characterization stuff we did at frame uh we've kind of confirmed that as being like a high volume high load uh area so again pretty simple um you know we didn't we didn't invest a ton of money um you know i had a distiller buddy who brought in grain neutral spirit and so pretty much had free ibc totes at my disposal but even then they're not that expensive if you have to pick them up um they're super handy and so they hold a lot and so and you know we found a composter would pick it up pretty cheap that was cheaper than a septic haul so that was also really uh really helpful um i'd say the biggest win uh at mother road was that the city the city wanted us to succeed um, we were, we were open to everything that they suggested. We were really receptive. We actually found what they did fairly interesting. Um, so it was just kind of cool to learn from them. Um, they actually, instead of, they, they lent us their, a composite sampler. Um, so when we did our weekly monitoring, they just, they just dropped a sampler off for us for the whole year. Um, and we just would hook it up on days that we had to do, uh, you know, batch sampling. And it was, it was really nice. You know, that's a, that's an eight, eight to $10,000 you know, savings just right there. Did you find like doing batch sampling, like, you know, only once a week or whatever the rate was, I mean, uh, talk about how that factors in, because obviously, you know, some breweries are going to have uh, very different 
uh, affluent on one day versus another in some situations. Was that just not the case there? Was it kind of similar on a daily basis? Yeah, I mean, so that that is certainly, you know, an issue. And, you know, your permit will dictate how often you have to sample. Um, you know, our current permit has a sampling twice a week here at Freem. Um, and due to the nature of the BOD sample, um, so BOD5 uh, is a five-day turn time, and it only has a 24-hour refrigerated hold time before it must be sampled. Um, so you're kind of limited on what days you can even sample, um, you know, typically Monday through Thursday. Um, you know, so it can, you can sample, get it to a lab, you know, <clears throat> unless you have a lab that's open seven days a week, um, you know, both here in Hood River and in Flagstaff, we, you know, kind of standard Monday through Friday labs. So we could only sample on, you know, four of the seven days of the week. Um, thankfully, you know, both of these were, you know, production facilities, you know, mother was a little bit smaller, but still kind of a, a production focused microbrewery. And so, you know, day in, day out production was pretty similar. Um, you know, the only difference differences for us at both facilities would be the weekends and you can't sample in any way. What does side streaming look like at, at Freem? Again, you know, nothing we're doing at Frame is conceptually different than what we did at Mother Road. Um, just we've, we have a lot of things scaled up a little bigger. Um, so we do, uh, we have a fully automated uh, collection system on our uh, 50 barrel brew house. Um, so we integrated uh, a third party uh, collection vessel and pump system uh into our into our main control panels um so basically every time a vessel is empty is empty of process um instead of running drains to floor we have it'll pump into a holding tank the holding tank then pumps over over to our outside uh solids holding tank um so again fairly simple automation but really nice that that is automated you know because you know hot side hot side side streaming can be really challenging i mean purely just from the heat um, you know, you're dealing with, you know, 100, 175, 180 degree uh, last runnings, you know, ke- kettle, uh, kettle whirlpool troop, you know, some, some real issues if you're doing manual side stream, um, which is one of the reasons it took so long for us to add that at Mother Road. Um, we figured that would be a big point, but, you know, we didn't really, it took us a while to figure out a good method uh, for safely doing that, um, you know, so make sure that our brewers are not, you know, no brewer is really stoked about side streaming to begin with. Um, and then you have to ask them to, to handle 180 degree, uh, you know, brew house waste and the, the stoke level goes down a lot more. Um, right. So talk a bit more about that though. What, what were some of the things you found that worked? Is there anything you could mention that might save somebody else some, some headaches? Like everything with safety, you know, the more you can engineer out the hazard, the better. Um, so really just finding a way to connect uh, some hard piping or at least like semi-permanent hosing uh to pumps into a holding vessel and then be able to pump that holding vessel out um so that our brewers never actually had to um you know move hoses of hot of hot work or um you know be like collecting collecting buckets or you know and honestly one of the things that was really nice is that we then pulled that out of like splashing in the drains um so we actually even got a safety savings there um, it wasn't, it wasn't rocket science. It was just simply just kind of having the bandwidth and the, the infrastructure, the, the money to invest into kind of like getting some fabric, some fabrication done on the brew house so that we could easily, you know, hook hoses up, um, and then finding a kind of a run into a mi- intermediate tank, um, and then being able to hook our intermediate tank up into a network of pipework. Um, cause what we did, what we started building at, uh, mother road was, 
uh, basically we could pump from the cellar over into the holding tank without having to you know move totes around. Um, so we had kind of a central pump station that we did that with, and so that was also close to the brew house. So once that was there, then once we could add some you know kind of semi permanent connections at the brew house, then we really the brewers weren't really handling the work; they were just monitoring its flow. Coming up, you know, based on the flow of a small brewery, you know, the side streaming gains don't have to be huge. Um, you can really just focus on a few key areas. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. Support for this episode comes from BSG. Did you know that BSG sources hops directly from growers and processes them in their FSSC certified facility in the Yakima Valley? From Azaka to Zappa, BSG's hops are pelletized for optimal dispersion in the boiler or FV and packaged in nitrogen flush bags to preserve all those tasty aromatics. To learn more about how your hops go from farmer to fermenter, get in touch with BSG at letstalkhops at bsgcraft.com. Are you looking to improve yield, quality, and sustainability in your cellar? Alpha Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience offering centrifuges, dealkalization systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. Let the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals. Visit alphalaval.us MBAA to learn more. KegShoe is trusted by hundreds of breweries around the world to track and manage keg fleets, empower sales teams, and gain new insights into how their beer is treated from distributor to tap. KegShoe. Sell more, lose less, deliver your best. For more info or to get started with keg tracking, CRM, or smart monitoring, visit kegshoe.ca slash podcast. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins July 22nd. District Mid-Atlantic meets in Richmond, Virginia, July 23rd. What to do when you screw up? A DEI webinar on July 26th. District Northern Illinois has a summer shop talk at Crust Brewing, July 29th. District Midwest meets in Columbus, Ohio, July 30th. The annual District Texas meeting at End of the Hills begins August 5th. 
the 2022 Brewing Summit, that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC, is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. All right, keep going. What else do you want to say about um, how, how side streaming works at Frame? Yeah, and then the other half um, is it's very manual <laughs> is, is the uh, downside. Um, you know, we have, gosh, now we have 30 uh, FVs at Frame, um, everything from a 30 to a 250. Um, we do a lot of seller drops, um, so you know, yeast and hot material. Um, so, you know, we, we almost have a full-time person uh, five days a week who is uh, pushing what we call the BOD bot. Um, it's basically a mobile pump cart um, and, you know, intermediate vessel uh, to collect, collect tank drops. Um, you know, it works, it's a, but it's a real pain <laughs> and everyone hates it. <laughs> like I said, nobody really wants to be doing wastewater. And, and why is that necessary? And how, how did you end up there versus just, um, you know, another lift station coming out of a, a cellar drain type of situation? Uh, yeah. So, uh, part of that is related to our just the setup of our brewery. Um, you know, we have we have a fairly long and narrow uh, facility that evolved you know over the ten years of the company. Um, so it used to be four separate bays, um, which we've taken over over the years. So we have to go everywhere from our uh, small original cellar on the east side of the building to our large new cellar on the west side of the building, um, and simply that was just became like a fairly large infrastructure um, investment, you know, cutting out a whole new uh, lift station in each cellar um, was just not practical. Um, It would shut production down for too long. Um, That's a huge expense to basically pull tanks, cut, cut holes in the floor and then repipe drains there. Cause you have to separate your two streams. You know, we already have our, our industrial and our sanitary separate. We would then have to add another uh, separate drain system that would just collect side stream waste. You know, and that's you know half a million dollar investment there. So that that wasn't really that practical. Um, that said, we are also investigating uh, a better process for this. Um, you know, some folks use uh, diaphragm pumps strategically located in the cellar um, where they can hook up to. Um, those are really great. Um, you know, they have a huge air draw if you have the air comp- if the air compressor capacity. Um, they're also very slow, um, so they're not. You know, you have to. You really also have to have someone who's kind of monitoring them most of the day, um, again, with 30 tanks. Um, so some issues there. Um, and this is kind of what we settled on to start. And it is certainly not the the end solution. Okay, cool. Um, I guess I just want to mention that, you know, um, some of what we're talking about can sound kind of overwhelming to folks, but this doesn't have to all be complicated. You can actually make some pretty decent gains with some very simple solutions, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, that's kind of what I was trying to get at is that, you know, we started very small and kind of cost effectively <laughs> to say it well, uh, at, at mother road. Um, and we're not really doing anything different at frame, um, just the scales larger and we've added more automation. Um, so, you know, it can be done very simply. Um, we actually have at our small facility, um, that has our barrel and blending, uh, portion of the business, um, you know, they simply just collect, you know, CIP waste and any sort of 
residual um, into an IBC tote. Um, they let that fill up. They check pH and then adjust it manually and then discharge it to drain. Uh, it's you know as simple as can be. Um, you know, and that that operation is about a thousand barrels. So you know that's kind of you know around what the average brewery size is these days. So you know a few IBC totes and a pH meter and you know some hosing and you kind of already have a pH treatment system in place. You know, same thing with side streaming. You know, it's if you started with just, you know, based on the flow of a small brewery, you know, the side streaming gains don't have to be huge. Um, you can really just focus on a few key areas. You know, if you collected all of your yeast in a tote and sent that to a composter, you would probably be in a really good spot. Talk about the watchouts related to stormwater. That's probably not something a lot of brewers think about until they get a visit from DEQ, at which point they really start thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, part of the big reason stormwater is a big deal in Hood River, um, we're located on the Columbia River. Um, so, you know, all of our stormwater drains flow directly into the Columbia. Um, and that's fairly common, you know, in, in any state with a large watershed, um, a lot of river systems, um, you are not far away from draining into a river. Um, and so the big one we found is, you know, having these very detailed plans in place um, to make sure that we meet uh, Oregon DEQ guidelines. Um, You know, and a lot of it is not different from, you know, kind of good manufacturing practices in general. Um, But really what the big, the big crux of it is, is we have to be very cognizant of anything that happens outside, um, anything that can flow into one of the four stormwater drains that are kind of within the footprint of the, of the brewery external operations, you know, I just thinking of, you know, raw material ins and outs, um, you know, forklift traffic, trucks, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, be cognizant of, you know, does, does a pallet of beer get moved outside and start, le- you know, and there's like, you know, someone stabs it with a forklift. Does it leak in the parking lot? That actually could be a violation. Um, we had an issue a while back with spent grain bins, uh, before we moved over to the bigger system with a silo, um, leaky spent grain bins, uh, caused a violation. Um, all, all those kind of things uh, can be issues uh, for stormwater discharge. And so they're looking at for a few different things. They're obviously looking at like, you know, major, major chemical constituents. But similarly, I mean, all our public, public treatment works does is it makes sure that the water that the city of Hood River discharges to the Columbia is, you know, obviously safe um, from a toxic contaminant standpoint, but primarily is reduction of BOD and TSS that can really harm, uh, you know, aquatic life. And so, you know, I'm sure everyone's heard of toxic algal blooms and things like that. A lot of that's related to, you know, you know, high nutrient runoff, which is essentially what comes out of a brewery. One of the big things with stormwater prevention, you know, at both facilities has been, uh, you know, any sort of, uh, you know, spank rain drip off. Um, those have a really high potential for, uh, either, you know, kind of like agricultural damage, if you have any sort of, you know, rain gardens or even just landscaping uh, around that area, uh, spent grain, you know, waste is fairly low pH and will pretty much kill any soil it's near. Um, but that's also like a fairly visible uh, indicator of a problem to an inspector or even just your kind of your neighbors, because um, typically it'll start stinking pretty bad and people will see it. Um, it does not look yeah. very pretty. Um, and so doing everything you can uh, to kind of mitigate that, you know, a big project we did at Mother Road was um, we had a 
we discharged a straight auger right off the ladder ton into a uh, dump truck that parked there. Um, and we found it no, no matter how well we sealed that dump truck, it would always leak a little bit. Um, and so we ended up doing a fairly large investment to pour a concrete pad uh, for the dump truck to sit on that flow that would f- any drain, anything that dripped off would flow into <clears throat> a drain that would then just pump into our solids tank. Uh, so we were actually able to capture that pretty effectively. Um, was that covered? How did you keep rainwater out of that? Yeah, it doesn't rain that much in Flagstaff. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, which is part of the problem if you uh, have been following the, the forest fires. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we did have that benefit, but actually it was fairly effective at not collecting too much rain, um, even during monsoon season. Um, so that's just also like, you just have to manage where your downspouts are um, and what, what might run into there. Um, if it's just open, not on like a huge you know, in a huge culvert or something, you actually, you'd be surprised how little water you'll actually capture down there. The other big one that, you know, is also just good manufacturing practices, really just chemical handling, Um, you know, and so having a good plan for chemical storage, containment, um, and then spill mitigation. So spill mitigation and handling. So, you know, it's really just, you know, making sure all of your chemical storage areas are clearly marked. Uh, They're they're in a place where they can be clearly spills can be clearly or quickly addressed. Um, all chemicals are on adequate spill protection pallets. So, you know, things you can just pick up on Uline um, and that, you know, you have a training plan as well as easy access to spill kits. Um, and usually those spill kits are just a big bucket of, you know, either sweeping compound or something similar or spill prevention or spill absorbent pads. Um, it's pretty similar, you know, pretty simple. It's a lot of stuff we just picked up on Uline. Yeah. And I won't name any names, but if you're, uh, happen to be a brewery in a very old building, make sure you know, uh, which drains are tied into, to which, so that you're not sending what you think is going to the sanitary sewer down to the storm drain. Yeah. I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, all right, let's get into some of the, the challenges you've faced. Um, yeah. So, uh, as we got into kind of building out our system, um, you know, I came into a system that was kind of in, in process, uh, of final commissioning, um, and really kind of finding that there was a lot of challenges. Um, you know, one of the beauties of a, of an, of a fully manual system is you can control the whole thing. Um, but yeah, obviously not super practical for, for larger scale operations. Um, and so we were really struggling early on at Freeme, uh, with just, with good automation. Um, and a lot of it was tied to just, uh, poor selection of level sensing, um, you know, having limited redundancy and we were finding our system kept going down mostly because of, you know, false, false positives. So, you know, things tanks saying that they're full when they're not, or tanks saying, but then occasionally we would have the opposite. We had a false negative where the tank did not flag as full, didn't shut the system down. Um, and, you know, came into, uh, some of the pictures that you you'll you could see in my presentation uh, of you know our wastewater pad basically just covered in effluent um, you know and that was a real challenge um, and so I spent a lot of time looking into you know correct level sensing building in redundancy in this um, and it was amazing um, you know for every every brewery that's facing wastewater uh, they've all had this challenge of trying to manage the levels of tanks um, and they've all solved it in a different way. Um, One of the main challenges, especially on the side stream side, we have an 11,000 gallon holding tank um, that we, that we, you know, 
is kind of a limiting factor, just like spent grain would be for a lot of brewers. Um, when your your holding tank is full or your spent grain silo is full, you know, you kind of have to stop operations until you can get it mitigated. And we had a we had a single sen- continuous level sensor in there to start, and the thing the thing was only accurate, you know, with within like forty percent, which is not very useful. Uh, as well, would was really prone to failure. Um, and one of the issue issues with SideStream is that it's a it's a really mixed constituency. You know, you're you're combining everything from you know high strength rinse water, weak wort, yeast. You know, it's a dynamic mixture of things. You know, you'll have some continued fermentation, so you have foam buildup. You know, you have your density is kind of all over the place. So you can't use, so a lot of sensors have issues. Um, you know, I love pressure transducers, uh, for measuring level, but when you have a, you don't have a consistent density in your side stream, well, your pressure transducer is pretty, uh, pretty useless, you know, radar, sonar, sonar sensors are also great. Um, but if you have a lot of high foam on the top of your, uh, top of the liquid level, those are prone to failure. Um, you know, mechanical switches are great, but if they get crap on them, they're also prone to failure. So it took us a while to kind of really find something that worked. Um, and so we ended up settling on, you know, a combination of, uh, a radar sensor, um, with some mechanical switches, um, basically as a redundancy that would, you know, flag alarms. Um, that was, it's kind of the long, you know, the long journey to just figure out that, you know, two is better than one. Um, and really trying to understand our process so that we could, you know, make sure that we weren't putting ourselves in a position of risk. Okay. All right. Pumping solids sounds like an, another area fraught with danger. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was another really fun one. Um, you know, and it seems seems somewhat simple, uh, but you know, when you're when you're filling up a big solids holding tank, you know, that's that's a mixture of yeast, weak wort true material, you know, it's just like a fermenter, um, you know, things like to settle to the bottom. Um, and so we were finding over time that we just kept building up a true layer on the bottom of our holding tank to the point where we, we turned an 11,000 gallon tank into effectively a 6,000 gallon tank, um, because our true layer was so solid in the bottom. And even the, uh, the positive, the positive suction side pump was unable to actually pump that kind of solids. Um, and, you know, we, we had it set up so we could like back flush into the tank, but all we were really doing was just punching a hole through that true layer, um, letting the liquid fraction fraction drain off um, and then leaving behind somewhere between three and 4,000 gallons. And so it was, you know, severely limiting the capacity of that tank. We were having to haul more often, but we were like hauling and then sometimes, you know, the tank's full, but we can't even get a full load out of it. And so, you know, we were really trying to come up with a solution to ad- adequately pump them. We started looking at, you know, larger uh, positive displacement pumps, something that you would see kind of on the on a louder ton or on a spent grain silo for discharging spent grain. Um, you know, again, but did you look at ever, did you ever look at putting an agitator in the tank? Uh, we did look at putting an agitator in the tank, um, but you know, all these solutions were you know huge infrastructure investments, not only for the equipment themselves, but also for the physical, uh, you know, modification of an entire system. Um, so right. it was, you know, an agitator would have been great, but then we're, you know, getting on top of an 11,000 gallon tank, modifying the top to hold a big motor, bringing more power over, you know, same thing with the pump. Um, 
and what we ended up finding, um, you know, again, through some collaborations with some local breweries was um, actually local wineries um, was a basically an integrated air mixer um, that was able to just splice into the outlet valve outlet pipe of the pump or of the tank. Um, and basically what this thing does is it just creates a big, a large diameter bubble. Um, and that bubble, uh, if you can set the, the basically you can change the bubble size and the frequency, um, to basically have a large bubble, almost the diameter of your tank, uh, start at the bottom and go to the top and just keep things mixed. They're really common in the wine industry for uh, whole cluster ferments, uh, to keep things moving. And so it was as simple as some copper piping spliced into uh, the outlet pump or outlet pipe of the the pump or of the tank. We didn't have to do any. We didn't have to shut the tank down. Um, it ha- we installed it in about three hours. Um, runs on one ten uh, power, so we didn't even have to bring new power over. Um, you know, we just had to tie in an airline, um, which we actually had fairly close. Um, so, you know, all in, we were about 20,000 bucks. Um, and you know, immediately we actually stopped using the back flush and we've since been able to get that tank, uh, empty on a regular basis. So that's pretty cool. You know, and that tank was conical, right? So, I mean, it's still able to make that bubble, um, at a, at the cone. Yeah. It's got a, it's got a shallow cone, but, um, certainly it is conical. So yeah, it is, it works effectively in a conical tank, um, which is a great point. You know, some people have old damaged fermenters. Those are great holding tanks. Um, you know, any, anything you would hold beer in will hold wastewater. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, and, um, do you have any foaming issues with that? This, I mean, since you're, you're adding bubbles in there or is that not really an issue? So we've been pretty lucky. Um, when we first started, we did have quite a bit of foaming issues and we were looking at some mitigating, uh, equipment there um actually but since we've added so much since we've really started aggressively collecting from the brew house um i think that the heat uh the regular kind of you know 180 degree discharge in there um really puts the yeast at a pretty high stress level um and so we've actually seen foaming go down quite a bit um you know so i haven't i haven't investigated it too much um but we did have a lot of foaming issues at mother road um but you know so that the only thing we do there is if we do hit that mechanical high switch where, you know, the, uh, an audible and visual alarm will go off in the brewery. Um, the, the brewers know to go turn off the pulse air, um, just so we don't like have just accidental overflow because the bubble yeah. is going out through the vent. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's hear about expenses. What does it cost to haul away solids? <laughs> well, as everything hauling is getting more expensive, um, you know, as the cost of fuel has gone up a lot, um, the cost of hauling has gone up a lot. Um, one thing we face here in Oregon is we don't have a lot of outlets uh, currently. Um, we're exploring to find more uh, for this side stream waste. So depending on the outlet that we're using, uh, it costs about uh, 600 to $1,200 for a 5,000-gallon pickup. Um, so, you know, somewhere it's like 12 to 22 cents or something, uh, 12, 24 cents a, pa- uh, a gallon to discharge, um, you know, and unlike spent grain, there's not really high value associated with it. Um, so it's kind of basically going to disposal, uh, you know, and so we're doing, you know, three trucks a week. And so our average, you know, costs are somewhere between 90 and $180,000 a year just in hauling, um, just in getting rid of our side stream. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, we're moving to a surcharge 
a surcharge system here uh, in the city of Hood River uh, versus our, our hard limits model. So even at our current, the current efforts of side streaming, our current production, you know, we have quite a bit of money uh, that we'll be paying just to then handle all of our BOD and TSS, either the stuff that we have to, we side stream or the stuff that we do end up discharging to the city. Um, and so, you know, I did the math and, you know, if we were to go up to, you know, a 50,000 barrel brewery um, in the next couple of years with the associated flows, um, you know, that's a, almost a $300,000 bill just in BOD and TSS mitigation. Wow. So, um, but talk about maybe about that difference in cost. I mean, yeah, you've got the, you know, 90 to 180 grand uh, to haul it off, but, you know, what would you be looking at under this new surcharge model if you weren't doing any of that? I mean, that's got to be a, a crazy high number, right? Oh, certainly. Um, you know, I actually did the math. Um, we, we did, mo- we did take a, a representative sample of our side stream to see kind of what the BOD loading is. Um, and it would be about twice as expensive to treat it at the city than to haul it. So there's definitely a financial incentive to be side streaming. Um, right. You know, I think the thing is for most breweries and, you know, we always knew that, you know, wastewater was going to fit into the, into the picture. Um, but I think we had no no idea that we were looking at you know kind of somewhere you know over a quarter million dollars a year in in just those kind of in just those you know co- haulage side stream um, and you know surcharge fees in addition to just kind of the general operating costs of running a you know pH treatment system um, you know labor chemicals etc. Yep, like it or not, you're in the wastewater business. <laughs> Do you want to talk about any other solutions that you've considered? Certainly, you know, we we are just at the beginning of this journey. Um, you know, we're continuing to look for for more opportunities to better uh, handle all this stuff. Um, you know, we're looking at ways to dewater uh, really effectively to get our side stream down to a low enough moisture content that we could add it to our spent grain. Um, you know. That's pretty tightly monitored here with our purveyors uh, for spent grain. Um, It seems to be less so in other states, uh, but they have very tight limits in moisture content. Um, You know, we're looking at, you know, even like weak wort recovery on the brew house. Uh, You know, we'll discharge on a, on a large brew day. Um, We'll discharge somewhere between a thousand and 1500 gallons of just weak wort. Um, You know, so, you know, that's, that's, that's over 10% of our, of our, tank holding capacity and just, you know, just one point on one day. And so if we could just, if we could eliminate that or reuse that, you know, as well as see the knock on effect of recovering extract on the brew house. Um, and so that's something we're exploring. Um, we're also just kind of, you know, looking if there is any sort of use for, you know, kind of a high carbon source. Um, you know, I know some people have really effectively done that. Uh, I thought it was a MBA presentation, but I couldn't find it. Um, I believe the stone plant in the city of Richmond um, is actually trucking their weak wort uh, to one of the plants um, that is is in need of carbon. Um, you know, some plants, some treatment works will you know have too much of a nitrogen source, usually too too high municipal waste versus commercial waste, um, and will need to balance that out with a carbon source. And so breweries can effectively sell that to their treatment plant. And then the location is everything. Location is everything. Uh, and then the last one is, you know, a real big uh, source of BOD is beer. Um, so simply put, the less beer you put down the drain, um, the less you're treating, um, either through side streaming or, you know, 
through surcharges at the at the city. So really looking at all the points of waste on your 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 filler, um, you know, kegs, etc. You know, the less beer that goes down the drain is not only you know profits generated through sales. Uh, it's also you know a knock on effect is you will actually save costs on the on the disposal side. You did a wastewater characterization study to better understand your affluent sources. Talk about that. Yeah. So as we as we were on our wastewater journey, um, you know, one of the one of the initial things, you know, when we were on our our hard limits model versus before we went on the surcharge model, we kind of wanted to figure out, you know, how much side streaming is too much side streaming, and where can, where should we be really concentrating our efforts um, to get the best bang for our, you know typically labor buck. Um, like I said, you know, even at Freem, we still have a fairly laborious process for side streaming. And it was, it was important to us to make sure that, you know, we could, we only had to do as much as we needed to do to stay within our compliance limits. Um, and so what we did was we took samples from every point that we either were collecting from or thought would be loading points. Um, I actually kind of took this idea from the MBATQ article that, the uh, Eric and Ann did down at Pizza Port, um, who are you know the guru, my gurus on this. Um, they've been unbelievably helpful uh, on our journey. Um, but we really wanted to understand uh, where our characterization was, um, and knowing we had different equipment, we we thought we would see some similar numbers, but probably some differences. Um, and what we found was was pretty interesting. Um, you know, as as I mentioned, you know, it's all related to the actual concentration and then your total flow. Um, you know, some, some non-surprising things, um, we found were, you know, yeast, yeast and, uh, yeast is probably our biggest loading point across the board. Um, you know, it's, it's fairly high volume, but it's also really high concentration. Um, you know, it's 150,000 milligrams per liter of, of BOD and about 75,000, uh, milligrams per liter of TSS. So, you know, it's, it's, it's double-sided, you know, it hits you on both sides. Um, you know, weak wort was, was definitely not a super high concentration uh, area, but it's a huge volume. So it comes up pretty high as far as total BOD loading. As I mentioned, it's like for our big brew house, it's about a thousand to 1500 gallons a day. Um, some of the interesting stuff though, was, you know, the 50 barrel louder, ton- the 50 barrel brew house kind of brews pretty consistent core beers, you know, that's Pilsner and IPA most of the time. And then, you know, some, you know, other low gravity ales and low gravity lagers on that side. Um, our old 15 barrel brew house, um, that, that brews all over, is brewing all over the place. You know, it's, it's everything from a Czech lager to a, you know, 30 Plato double mash Imperial stout. Um, and, you know, realizing how much volume we were dumping off the, uh, louder ton, uh, after those, those big Imperial stouts, I was like, man, we should probably be checking this. Um, and what I found is, uh, a single day of, of barrel aged stout brewing. Um, would have put us over our limits. Um, so you're just that point alone. Um, and so we kind of like quickly were like, okay, we really need to watch what brews we're brewing over there and how we're managing that. Um, so we don't collect from that brew house all the time. Um, but we certainly have brews that flag, uh, for scheduled to do some manual, uh, manual collection over there. And so that was a real interesting one, you know, cause I actually compared, uh, barrel aged out to Vienna lager. Um, and it's an order of magnitude difference uh, in loading. Um, so something to watch depending on your uh, your product mix. 
Uh, it's a good reason to make make a. So there's a good reason some people make small beers out of those uh, um, those those second runnings from the from the strong beers. Oh, I was just going to say it's a good reason to make more lager. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> um, you know, and and not surprisingly, um, you know, beer is not a huge loading point, but understanding your volumes uh, of how much you're discharging there. Um, you know, I've worked on small fillers, and we had a small filler here for a long time, and you know, sometimes you can approach 10% loss on those things. Um, you know, if you're putting that much beer down the drain, um, you know, not only does that suck to waste a bunch of beer, but that is a pretty high load on your BOD. Um, <clears throat> almost no TSS, of course, uh, but uh, your BOD load will spike um, if you have really high beer waste days and understanding how to mitigate that properly. And lastly, the uh, the biggest control that we started learning from, um, you know, was like, how little we actually were pulling off our kettle versus our whirlpool. Um, and so really kind of mitigating those points. Um, we found that if we could kind of control our kettle rinses, knowing that there's not a lot of, uh, you know, high strength waste coming off the bottom of the kettle, the way our brew house is set up, at least um, we could keep a lot of just pretty much water out of our solids holding tank. Um, and, you know, we obviously don't want to waste water in general, but we certainly don't want to pay extra for just getting rid of it. Um, so uh, that was that was a really a real big learning curve for us. Cool. You mentioned Ann and Eric earlier from Pizza Port. We had them on the show back in 2019. Uh, how similar or different were your results compared to what they found? Yeah. Um, the interesting thing is uh, the their louder ton pretty much was the average between ours. Um, so our big louder ton was you know, much less than their current ladder ton, but, uh, our smaller ladder ton was significantly higher, at least with some of those, you know, specialty beers. So I think really that was kind of at least confirmed that we, we were validated in doing our own study, um, knowing that, you know, it's so equipment dependent. Um, we definitely found that like yeast is a huge load. Um, and that would be my first recommendation for anybody. Um, if you're faced with, with BOD is controlling your yeast side stream. Um, and that, but also that beer, um, beer was kind of the hidden one. I think, um, you know, I think everyone thinks that they're really good at not wasting beer. Um, but it doesn't, you know, a 5% beer loss, uh, can really spike your system. And so really make putting efforts around, uh, you know, beer recovery is something that I think a lot of people should work on. What advice do you have for listeners who um, haven't taken any of these steps yet? Or what do you want to tell folks who maybe stopped listening 40 minutes ago because they <laughs> think they'll never need to deal with any of this stuff? Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, well, my advice is you probably will. <laughs> um, and that it is worth you know, putting uh, wastewater pretreatment in any of your brewery growth plans. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff we did is not super complicated um, or really that cost cost burdensome. Um, but, you know, some of the things until you've already built a facility, exactly. Some of the, some yeah. of the key elements that we have had at both facilities are, you know, in ground lift stations. Um, and so those are the type of things you do not want to be, um, you know, stopping production in the middle of July uh, because the city has decided to uh, manage you. Um, so, you know, you want to build those in, um, you know, those actually are not that, that expensive. Um, so, you know, getting that as part of your plan. Um, and then the, the easiest and cheapest one is 
really just being open with your uh, publicly owned treatment works um, or whoever at your city uh, manages that. You know, I can't speak enough to how how successful we've we've managed those relationships are. You know, and how important those are to us. Um, you know, like I said at Mother Road, you know, we went on a probation period. Um, we were really compliant. Um, they even extended our probation period because we were being so compliant um, to help gather more data. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, they said you, they were even giving us equipment to use. Um, so there's no reason to fight these people. Um, you know, they're doing their job. You know, they have a mandate either from the city or from their contractor, uh, you know, to treat effluent. And ultimately the effluent they treat typically goes into places we, we really appreciate, you know, here in Hood River, it's, it's into the Columbia River. Um, you know, in Flagstaff, it was into the you know Flagstaff watershed that uh, that fed some wetlands. Um, so these are all beautiful places, you know, places that we enjoy recreating. Um, and so, you know, we want to be good partners upstream of what they're doing to you know downstream. Uh, you know, honestly, the next thing I would say is just like you know, don't think you have to spend it all at once. Um, you know, we talked a lot about some phased investments here, some cheap investments, um, some you know, you know, spending figuring out what the most important thing is and focusing on that and then slowly adding things in. Um, and lastly, you know, finding someone who wants to own this project. I think a lot of breweries struggle because uh, they kind of do wastewater by committee or, you know, it's someone who's not involved with the production floor because it's something they have to do and it's part of their compliance. Um, but finding someone who's just kind of excited about it, uh, I've actually found it really interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to be a steward of your company within your municipality or your region. Uh, you get to interface with some really interesting folks. So it, it can be really fun and valuable. Um, but as long as you have an owner, someone who's, who's going to take full responsibility for it, that, that's critical regardless of the scale. That was Campbell Morrissey here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check the show notes for a direct link to Campbell's District Northwest presentation. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.